Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask you to bless us as we look at your word, guide us and teach us as we see what you would have us to see from all of this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah has been talking before this chapter about the millennial kingdom, the lion laying down with the lamb, the wolf uh, laying down, uh, all these good things. And we're going into the final chapter. And the you know, thing about Isaiah, and we mentioned this long, long ago, the book of Isaiah basically is the gospel message in the Old Testament. It shows a God of love who forgives, who cares about his people and lifts them up. All right? uh, the first part's a little heavy, but the last 30, uh, 27 chapters of it are very much Jesus, the, the Son, and, and uh, all of that stuff. So we can see the, the, the books of the, Old, the New Testament right there in that story. Uh, so we're starting in verse 1. Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you built unto me, and where is the place of my rest? For all these things hath my hand made, and all these things have made, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. He that kills the ox as he who slew a man, he that sacrifices a lamb as if he had cut off a dog's head, he that offereth a, a oblation as he who offers swine blood, he that offers incense as he that blesses an idol, yea, they have chosen their own way, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose their delusions and will bring their fears upon them, because when I called, none did answer. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose in which I delighted not. So here is God making some condemnation of the people. First, he says, because they had this attitude, we've got the temple, we've got God's house in our presence, and we're, we're going to be blessed because God dwells in our midst. And this has been the attitude of the Jews all through the centuries of the first temple and the second temple, uh, that because they had the temple, they were special. And because they had the temple, God would never judge them, you know, to remove, you know, remove the temple. Uh, but God here is saying, I am the Lord. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. In other words, I am so big, <laughs> you think I dwell in that house in Jerusalem? You know, and this is the point he's making with them. Yes, you are special. Yes, I have said that my presence will be among you. But the good news about God is because he is everywhere present he is present in their temple but he is also present everywhere else and for us he is present in every single Christian that follows him he fully indwells himself in us and even though he is fully in each one of us he is not diminished because he is infinite all right. So all of God can dwell in me, all of God can dwell in you, and all of God can dwell in everybody else, and he is not diminished because he is infinite. You know, um, and if you're a mathematics person like I am, if you divide infinity by any number other than infinity, you get infinity. All right? If you divide it by infinity, you get one. Anything divided by itself is one. All right? But if you divide it by anything other than infinity, which is we as human beings, we're, we're finite. And so 
we can take the fullness of God and still not diminish him in any way, shape, or form. This is something we've got to have, grab hold of. The fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelleth in Jesus who then indwells me. I have the fullness of God living in me for power, for strength, and for care. And he's not diminished because you all have the fullness of God in you as well. And it's pretty amazing. Here he's telling the Jews, you, know, you, think, you think that your building is so special? I encompass everything. And then as I say, not only does he encompass all of space, he encompasses all of time at the same moment. So he is fully indwelling us. He's fully indwelling Peter and John at the moment. He's fully indwelling David and Peter and Isaiah with no problem. All the same moment because he is not diminished. And this is what he's saying. You think you're special. You have put your hope not in me, but in my temple. And this is something we, even as Christians, have to be careful of. That we put our hope in God, in Jesus. Not the cross, not the Bible, not, not church. We put our hope and our faith and our trust in him. And this is what I've said. Sometimes being coming to church is not the best thing for some people. They're doing it for the wrong reasons. And we're looking at a lot of this chapter talks about doing things for the wrong reason and how God looks at it. And it says, you know, there is no place. You know, the, the whole, the, your earth where you, have, where you have my temple is my footstool. <laughs> he goes, matter of fact, I'm not even fully there. It's just my feet on the earth. So he's really bringing out to them, we're nothing. And, you know, sometimes when we really think about it, when we think about the vastness of the universe and how small earth is and how small we are on the earth, it's amazing that God cares for us at all. Now, humans are the pinnacle of his creation, so yes, we, we are more important than the entirety of the earth, but the earth is just a small speck in all of the universe. And God says... I still love you and I care for you. But the whole idea here is he's saying, <laughs> I'm this big, you know, your, your, your little insignificant temple down here is not that big a deal. And that's what they put their hope in. They had not put their hope in God. They put their hope in the temple, in the altar, and in the mercy seat. And they really didn't focus on the mercy seat that much. At least if they had focused on the mercy seat, they would have been focusing more on God and their forgiveness rather than the temple as a, as a building. And we need to be very careful about what is our focus on. Are we focused on the giver of the gifts or the gifts themselves? And oftentimes we get focused on the gifts. And I've been in there, I've done that, where I focused on his gifts for a period of time, going, God, man, I am just lonely, I'm, I'm de depressed, and God said, well, why don't you get over here to me instead of looking out all the gifts? And that's something important for us. Where is our focus? It's easy to get focused on an experience. God, I just feel so wonderful. I am, I am just glowing, and everything is happy, and everything is good. If that's your focus, when you start getting hard times come your way, now you're going to go exactly the opposite way, and you're going to go, woe is me. God doesn't love me anymore. He's not caring for me, but if my eyes are focused on him, I'm going, God, you were with me when everything was good, and you're with me now that everything is bad. 
because my focus is on you. And this is what he's talking about. Uh, it goes, all those things have my hands made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. So he says, you know, I made everything. I'm bigger than everything. Uh, but then he goes, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. Who does God pay attention to? The, it says poor here, or the humble. The one who understands their position before God. The, the con contrite person. The, the person who is weak. That understands that we need God. One of the things God must do to us when we are proud and haughty is break us. He will not let flesh stand in his presence. If we're proud and look at me and I'm, I'm so good and I can get this done, God will say, all right, let's put a few weights on you and see how proud and how straight and how tall you can stand. And if it don't break on the first weight, he'll, pour, he'll put more weights on us until we either humble ourselves or we get broken. God will force us to our needs for his child in humility. If that means, you know, if we're lucky and he puts one pound on us, we go, okay, God, I understand. Or does he put three tons on us and literally crush us because of how stubborn we are? And again, been there, done that many times in my lifetime, been so stubborn that I'm going to do things my way. And had God put a lot of weight on me to break me. And he says, these are the people, those that tremble at his word, that have fear at his word. You know, when we talk about this, if we're going to make anything high, it needs to be God's word because Jesus is the word. He's the word made flesh. The living word that we get to read will deliver us. Not the building, not even other Christians. Now, if you put your hope in other people, they're going to fail you. Always. You know, the person that you love the most in the church and is always edifying you and is when you're down at the lowest ebb is going to be the person who says something that's going to irritate you that day because your hope can't be in them. All right? And we need to keep our hope and focus on God and Jesus. And this is the same for a marriage. A marriage will fall apart. If somebody's married looking at their spouse to be their, be their happiness and their joy and their pleasure they're going to be disappointed because that person's human. There's going to be the day when they come home and they're in a grumpy mood and a bad mood and, and same day you're in a grumpy mood and a bad mood and wanted to be loved on and they're going to reject you and you're going to be disappointed and have a hard time if all your focus is on them. Our focus must be on Jesus. And then once we're focused on Jesus, now we can love others. We can stand up for others and be with others. Because we don't, and the problem with most marriages, if they don't know Jesus, is they don't know how to love. They have a conditional human love. I love you as long as I'm getting something out of it. And I'll be nice to you as long as I get something back in return. That's not true love. Unconditional, objective love is that I'm going to be loving you no matter what you do. No matter what you say, no matter how you act. It is beyond human capacity to do that. It takes God living in us to be able to even come close to unconditional love. And this is what he's saying. Who do I look at? Who do I come into? The humble, the contrite, those that fear his word. 
Then he gets into this very interesting contrast. And it's kind of interesting when you look at it because there's no but, there's no therefore, there's no nothing there other than a really strange statement. He that kills an ox or sacrifices an ox is like he that slays a man. Okay? He that sacrifices a lamb is as he that cuts off the dog's head or breaks its neck in the King James, but literally cuts his head off. All right? He that offers an oblation or a meat offering is as he that offers a swine blood. Now, to the Jew, that's terrible. Pigs are unclean animals, and you don't offer the blood of an unclean animal before God, and the pig, for some reason, is one of the uncleanest animals to the Jew. All right? This is why Jesus talked about the prodigal son feeding the swine. All right, that is about as low as you could go other than actually eating the, eating the creatures. You're now breeding the creatures that you think are detestable. And then he goes, um, and he that burns incense, and incense again, a good thing, you're supposed to burn incense to God, is like one who blesses an idol. Now, this is, this is something that God says, all of your righteousness is not worth anything. All the good things, because these are all good things. And we're going to look at the very bottom of this is that all, it's the wrong attitude. We can do all the right things for God with the wrong attitude or the wrong reasons. And God says, you were just worshiping idols. You were doing everything that I detest. And what is this attitude that he had? Yea, they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. Those who delight in doing things their own way. And this is something that we all have to work on so much. God says that we are to follow his ways. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on to your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. The contrary part is if I'm not delighting in him and I'm doing things my way, I won't delight him because I'm doing things my way and I might be doing good things. People look at me and say, well, you're not really that bad. You're coming to church. You seem to be reading your Bible. You're talking about praying and you're praying and you're praying to the ceiling. You're not praying to God. You're, you're reading your Bible just to get your, verse, your chapters or verses in. You're going to church to be seen but not to worship. And God says, you're doing things your way. It's all an abomination. Yeah. Before this, Isaiah told us that all our righteousnesses are filthy rags. And that word for filthy rags is really strong. Medical waste rags. And if you've ever been around an emergency room or an operating suite and you see the, the towels and everything that they use and the swabs they use, they are bad covered with blood. I used to work in an operating suite, and I got the pleasure of cleaning the place up and with all my gloves and everything, and these rags are there all over the place. Now, they take care of them, you know, because they have to count them all, because they can't leave them, but you see them all over the place, and that was what Isaiah said, our righteousnesses are our. It's saying that the, the, the killing of the ox was literally to sacrifice an ox. So I come into God with my ox to sacrifice, and I've got the wrong attitude about serving God. I'm doing things my own way. 
God saying, even though I came in with this very expensive sacrifice, it's just as bad as if I had killed a man because he, God says, I'm, I'm not accepting it. So that's the same thing as the man? Yes, the same thing all the way down. God says, you're doing all the things you're supposed to do to worship me, but you're coming to me with the wrong heart attitude, so I look at it as some of the worst things you could do. Trying to make themselves look good, make, look good in front of people, but not coming in to truly worship God. And he says, okay, you're coming in for the wrong reasons. And this is where we have to be careful as Christians. We can try to do things in our own way to make people think. Ananias and Sapphira. Right? Barnabas sells a piece of property, gives all of the money to the, to the church. He gets all kinds of praise from the church. So Ananias and Sapphira say, well, let's go sell a piece of property because we want the praise and, and glory to, of the church. It been, that would have been bad enough if they had given all of it. Now they say, well, let's keep part of it back and tell the church that we've given all of it. Okay, so they go even a step further. I mean, they would not have been blessed for the first one. I don't think they would have been struck dead for the first one, okay, if they had actually given God everything. You know, because Jesus said, if you get the praise of men, you've got your praise, you, you've got your honor. So I don't think it would have struck them dead for, for the wrong motives, but they wouldn't have got the praise and the glory of God. But they decided to even lie. And this is what happens when, we, when we're doing it for the wrong reasons... Now we slip back. Instead of, okay, I'm coming to church. Now can I make sure everybody can see me? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find the greatest, biggest Bible I can find, and I'm going to put a bunch of stickers on my car, and everybody's going to know I'm going to church, and they're going to know that I'm worshiping God. <laughs> I'm not saying bad for any of us to do. You know, but you understand what I'm saying. They just go on and they go, I want the biggest Bible I can find because I want everybody to see what I'm doing. Now, having said that, it's not a bad deal to carry a big Bible and let everybody know. But <laughs> what is your motive behind doing it? Was it bad that I wanted a bumper sticker that said Chloride Baptist Church because I was parked next to a lady that had over Oh, what is it? Oh, Hill Street. No, I want to get I want to try to get some bumper stickers for our cars. So uh, but no, there's not a problem with that. But what is your attitude and reason for it? Yeah. You know, these guys had an attitude or reason that they wanted to show. Yeah. They're wanting to show, but they're not going there because God said, offer your sacrifice. When they offer this, this uh, ox, it is supposed to be that Thanksgiving offering saying, God, I love you so much that I'm giving you your offering. And remember, this particular offering that the oxen is given you get back most of it to have a party with God and your friends and, and have to eat it within 24 to, to 72 hours, depending on your reason for giving it. All right? So he's saying, all you did is want a party and you, and you got your party. But I wasn't in it. It was just equivalent. You might as well have just gone out and killed a man because you're, you've, the reason was wrong. All right? And this is what he's saying at the very end of that. Their soul delights in their abominations. They have chosen their own ways. And too many Christians choose their own ways above God's ways. They just won't surrender themselves to God. And their attitude is wrong. And we've got to be careful. Because there's judgment that follows on this. And God says, all that good you've done is, is worthless. 
I'm not the one doing it. You're not doing it for me, and I'm not the one doing it through you. It's worthless. You say kind things to somebody that you didn't want to say it in your heart, and you're saying it through gritted teeth. Because you know that God says that you've got to be nice to somebody. Now, it is probably better than having said the bad thing you wanted to say, but you're also not where God wants you to be. Okay, there's still not the blessing on it. There won't be as quite, again, we go back to the consequences aren't the same. All right, I say the bad thing, there's consequences for it, but I say it through gritted teeth. I'm not getting the blessings and the consequences are lesser because I didn't hurt them. The other one hurt them and I'm going to have consequences for hurting them as well as having said the wrong thing. I, I say the good things through gritted teeth, at least I am not hurting them. I'm still going to have the consequences for not having the right heart attitude and, and wanting to bless them. This is what it's all about. When Jesus said, you know, that if you've looked at somebody with lust, you've, you've committed adultery in your heart, and people, well, if you've already done it, might as well go do it. No, there's a huge difference between the consequences for thinking something and actually going out and doing it. All right? And so we have to draw that line. We're, we're guilty either way. The consequence level of our guilt <laughs> is drastically different. Okay? It's one thing for God to wash our mind out. It's another thing to have to wash everything else out. Uh, and then he says, the consequences of their actions are, in verse 4, I also will choose their delusions or their mocking or making sport of them. They have decided to go against me. I will decide how they're, how they're going to suffer. You know, and this idea of making sport, making mock. I think of Elijah on Mount Carmel. He's mocking the prophets of Baal. You know, laughing at them, saying, you, maybe, you, maybe, he's sleep, you're, maybe he's sleeping, like, yell a little louder. Perhaps he went to the bathroom, you know. No, maybe he went on vacation. You know, and they yell more and they get, you know, get more excited. God will bring his judgment upon us and then will bring their fears upon them. Do you remember, hopefully before you were saved, when, when it seemed like everything that you feared happened to you? You know, God, I'm really worried that this is going to happen, and the next thing you know, it is happening. Because your attitude was against God. God brings these things, and, if, and he'll do it the same thing for Christians. If we're really not following him, we're not repenting, he'll bring our greatest fear upon us. All right, God, I'm really worried that I might have a you know, problem in my marriage. <laughs> you know, next thing you know, if you're not honoring God, there's a challenge in that area. God, I'm really worried that I'm going to get into an accident because of whatever. And then you find yourself in some kind of accident. God often brings what we fear upon us. Why? Because he's trying to get our attention. Because who are we to fear? God. The only thing that we are to fear as his people is God. You go through the Bible, and I've shared this with you before, I've read all the verses on fear and trembling, and terrify, and shaking, and quaking, all, those, all the ways those words are translated. One-third of the time he tells us, fear not. We are not to fear things that come our way. The other third of the time, it was just a statement that they were afraid. They weren't supposed to be afraid, but they were afraid. Every other one says, fear God. Our 
possibility of life is that we're to fear God. Why? Because he has everything in his control. When we truly believe he has everything in his control, then we, can't, we don't fear what might happen. Yeah. I've been reading the book, The Cross and the Switchblade, and, and just the, the strength that David Wilkerson had was he confronted the gangs that were ready to kill him in many cases. And over and over again he says, I don't fear you. God loves you. Now that was a supernatural statement that he made, because I'm sure he was quaking in his boots, you know, because he had a family and a, and a wife and a young child on the way. He didn't want to die. But he also knew that God was in control and that God had told him to be there. If we're doing what God is telling us to do, it's in God's hands what's going to happen to us. You know, the worst they can do is hurt us. The best they can do is send us to heaven. You know, so we need to be able to understand everything is in God's hands. And even if they hurt us, then we get to witness to the hospital staff. You know, if we're doing our job. Yeah. Yeah. So, but we see here, it says, I, have chosen, I, I choose their delusions and bring their fears upon them because when I called, none answered. And when I spoke, they did not hear, but they did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I delighted not. Oh, I hope that none of us ever backslide enough that we're choosing what God delights not in. Now, unfortunately, if we backslide, we're usually in where God does not delight. His people had backslidden so far. Many of them hadn't even chosen him in the first place. But they were choosing what God does not delight in. And our human nature, our flesh, will choose what God does not delight in. This is why we must be crucified in Christ, with Christ, because our flesh that will always choose what God does not delight in needs to be killed. And our flesh fights tooth and nail like a wild animal not to be crucified. It knows when God comes in that it's going to be crucified and will fight hard and has assistance from Satan and the demons and, and all of these things to keep, from, keep us away from him. We need to understand that he's going to crucify our flesh. And the crucifixion of the flesh hurts. The flesh is being killed. And the longer you've waited to get saved, the stronger your flesh has gotten over the years. The child who gets saved does not have a real strong flesh and bad thoughts and hasn't had years to have the wrong thoughts ingrained in their head. Destroying their flesh is a whole lot easier than getting that person who gets saved at 30, 40, 50, 60 years old who's lived an entire lifetime of sin and trying to think that their sin somehow got them something. Because even when we're saved, we still can look back and say, well, gee, there was something in it, wasn't there? And you know, in reality, there is. If sin did not have some pleasure in it, we would never have done it. Now, it's momentarily, it's momentary, and the cost of it is horrendous, but we enjoy the sin in the moment that we're in it for a little while. Otherwise, we would never do it. Why do people overeat? They enjoy the food. They don't enjoy the pounds that come after the food. They don't enjoy the, the sicknesses that might come from it if they eat the wrong foods. 
but they enjoy the food while they're eating it. Why do people get into sexual sins? Because they're enjoying the feelings that they're having in the midst of that activity. They don't, they don't enjoy the what have I done feelings afterwards and the convictions afterwards and the chances of diseases afterwards, but during the activity, they feel some form of pleasure. Why do people drink? To forget. Momentarily, they forget if they drink enough. And they'll, they'll remember the next day, and not only will they remember, they'll have the hangover, and they'll have less money than they had at the day before. <laughs> and so they just added to their problems, but for a moment, they forgot. You know, sin has its pleasure. And I know there's lots of preachers and pastors out there that will tell you sin has no pleasure, they're lying to you, and we all know it. Okay? The Bible tells us that sin has pleasure temporarily. But it has a huge backside to it that is not good. And we need to keep that in mind. If I'm following God, he's going to crucify the flesh. I'll make the decisions to follow him and not have all the bad parts of the sin that I would have, would have had. And then everything about God is the good. <laughs> because he blesses, he gives me strength, he gives me peace. He, he, in the shadow of the valley of death, he takes and walks with me. And he gives me to a pasture where I can eat. He leads me to beside still waters. He's right there in the midst of all the troubles, leading, guiding, and bringing me through to a peaceful place. And this is the beauty of following God and obeying God, is it may seem hard in the moment that we're doing it, because the flesh is arguing with us every moment. It makes no sense. Why are you doing this? How, you know, how, how, could you be, how can you be so stupid as to do these things? And you know, there's, there's no proof that it's going to do you any good. And you really, you know you enjoy this. And we're going, no, I'm going to follow God. And on the other side is the blessings that God has. When we go the other way, we have a momentary pleasure and then misery. This is what, God, what Jesus said. The way of life is a narrow road. But that narrow road opens up into complete liberty. We walk through a narrow gate, which is Jesus and his cross, and then he opens us up into complete freedom. The way to destruction is wide. But it's also that, that cattle chute that opens up wide, and you drive all your cattle to the chute, and it narrows down to a little tiny chute that it, at the very least takes them into a pen to take them to the, to the slaughterhouse or literally just takes them right on to the, to the trucks to carry away. Both of these words, when you understand them, life and total freedom and opens up into a broad vista of liberty or broad that leads to a final destination of hell. This is what we have to make our decision for. And in the moment, we need to always remember sin, death. <laughs> Following God, lots of life and freedom. Now, we don't usually think that clearly when we're in, we're in the temptation. But we need to train our minds to be thinking that clearly. Okay, God, you know, temptation, death, I think I want to follow you. And if we can get to the place where we literally get to the idea that temptation, death... <laughs> God good and, <laughs> you know, literally that, that blunt. Sin, bad, and death, God good and life. 
If we can really get that simple in our mindset when we're tempted, we would solve a lot of problems. Unfortunately, we don't. Our goal would be, God, help me to get to this place where I can be making the right decision. Be fully surrendered in making some, a very simple decision. All right, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my namesake, said, Let the Lord be glorified. But he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. The voice and the noise from the city, the voice of, from the temple, the voice of the Lord that renders recompense to his enemies. Before she travailed, she brought forth. There, before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who hath heard such a thing? Who hath seen such a thing? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to birth and not cause to bring forth, saith the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, saith the Lord? Rejoice you in, with Jerusalem and be glad for her, with her, and all that love her rejoice for joy with her, all you that mourn for her. Ye that suck that, that, and may be satisfied with the breasts of her con, cons, consolation, that you may... Milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Shall be, Then shall you suck, for you shall be born upon her sides and be dangled upon her knees. So I'm going to stop there. God is coming along and says, Hear the word of the Lord. And this word for hear is to hear and obey. And this is important. When we are looking at his word, we are to look at it to obey. And, you know, again, I come back to this idea. Many people I know, they just read their Bible. And I'd rather have people read their Bible than not read their Bible. But if all they're doing is just reading their Bible for the sake of checking off their books that they're reading, are no better off than reading Iliad or Homer or, or any other masterpiece out there Good literature, but not necessarily doing them a bit of good. We need to read with the idea that I'm reading your word, God, and I want to obey it. Now, will we obey it perfectly? No. But if our heart is to read to obey, we're reading it differently than we're just, if we're just reading through it. Now, if we're meditating and studying it, that's even better. Because that's really going to lead to obedience. And he says, you that tremble at the word... Your brethren have hated you and cast you out for my namesake. What is he talking about? The self-righteous people who think they're better than you, that aren't his. They're the ones back there that are doing everything with the wrong motive. And God's saying, you might as well be killing people and, and cutting up dogs and offering swine's blood. He goes, those people are rejecting you. You're honoring me. They're rejecting me. We've all been there, you know, and it's really bad... It's bad enough when the world rejects us. But when you get somebody in the church that says something bad or stupid to you, that hurts because you, they're supposed to know better. And I'm not going to say they're Christian or not Christian, or, you know, but they're at that wrong time leading people and being a stumbling block. And he's saying, these people say they're doing it in my name. The self-righteous people in Jesus' day and every other age 
come in saying, we're doing this for God. You are just so bad, you've got to get your act together. You know, and they're judging rather than loving. Now, there is a time when we can go to somebody and say, I am really concerned about what I'm seeing you do. You know, I am praying for you, and I'm concerned about the decisions I'm seeing you make. It's much different than you sinner, get right. You know, we need to be very careful about that. And it says that they will say, let the Lord be glorified, <laughs> but he shall appear to your joy and they shall be ashamed. Even when the apparently righteous come against us, God says, I will come to your side and I will bring joy to you and they will be ashamed. One thing about the self-righteous is Jesus said, be sure your sin will find you out. All right? When we sin and do not repent, eventually God's going to say, okay, I've given you chances to repent. I've given you chances to repent. Now we're going to let everybody know what your sin is. And he will shout it from the rooftop if we're not repenting. And we've seen this over and over. We see it several times when evangelists, televangelists, or, or pastors get into sin. Usually fornication and adultery. And they think they're getting away with it. Nobody's sharing anything with them. And then everybody in their church, everybody in their congregation knows about it. And there's real embarrassment then. And all they had to do was go before God and go, God, I am so repentant of this. Help me not do this anymore. And it would have been covered and not brought out. But if we try to hide our sin, God is going to make sure that it's known. To what extent? Depends on how many people you influence. If you have very small influence, then you'll have just a few people that get to know about your sin. If you have a lot of influence, a lot of people will know about your sin. That's why these televangelists, when, they, when, they, when God calls out their sin, it's to the whole world because they've had influence on the whole world. For some pastors, it'll only be to their church, however big that church is. For some people, it might just be their family because that's where their influence lies. But God is going to say, your, your enemies will be judged and made ashamed. Then verse 6 is kind of an interesting verse. A voice, a noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord. This is a three-pronged statement again, where God has said, a voice, a voice, a voice. The first one is a noise, and this noise is a tumult. It's a loud, crashing noise. All right? A, a loud, crashing noise will come out of the city. A voice from the temple and the voice of the Lord that renders recompense to his enemies. This basically is he's saying, God is our defense. God is the one who will bring punishment upon people. This is why we need to back off and let God defend. Let God be the one that brings the punishment upon people. Because I don't know about you, the times I've tried to bring punishment upon people, I have messed up almost every single time, and I can't think of a time that I didn't. I look at sometimes when God goes and punishes, and I say, maybe I should have done it because they got really hurt. But God knew what he was doing for them. You know, and it says that God will come out. God will re recompense his, the enemy. And 
this is, he will bring shame. He will bring a complete punishment upon them. And this is the beauty when God judges, because of who he is, it is just the right judgment that needs to be made. And not anything that I could do, not anything that, that uh, somebody else could do, but God says, I have the complete judgment. I know exactly how heavy to touch them. I know what to do. I had one of my children, if you looked at them with a cross, cross look, they, they broke into tears and repented. I had two others that you had to just about beat the daylights out of them before they would repent and, and make decisions. You know, God knows who we are. He knows how hard he has to touch us to bring us into repentance. And we need to just trust God and know that God will do it in his time. Most of us have this problem of, God, uh, they hurt me. I want them punished yesterday. I really wanted them punished before they hurt me, God, but you know, where are you? You know, why haven't you, why haven't you moved, God? And God's saying, the time's not right. I am moving. And he may even be moving even though we don't see him. He's trying to touch their life and convict them from the inside before he stomps on them. God always starts out gentle with discipline. And if we don't respond, we get heavier and heavier discipline. And God knows how far to go, but he will always start with repent. And if we repent at that state, everything's good. If we don't, he takes out the switch. <laughs> if we don't, man, don't do that, he brings out the, the two by four. And if we don't do that, he brings out the, the whips. <laughs> he will do whatever it takes and he will keep increasing until we finally respond. And if we don't, and we really are stubborn, and we're his child, he might just take us home and say, you're, you're a detriment to the, to the family, I'm taking you home. Which isn't the end of the world, except that you've lost a lot of ben uh, rewards that you should have had. So it's not a good thing. Don't be disobedient so bad that God takes you home. Besides, <laughs> which is a lot of misery before he takes you home. And your family might get miserable, too. Then he gets this very interesting thing. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who hath heard of such a thing? Okay? You know, and what he's saying is, does a woman give birth to the baby before she went into labor? That's what all that's about. She doesn't give birth before she goes into labor. He goes, who has heard of such a thing? But he goes on to say, for who has seen such a thing? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Israel was born in a day, in many ways. Abraham it was born immediately when Abraham was called and he walked away. It was reborn when they were called out of Egypt. Now that wasn't all in one day, but they were recalled back out. In 1948, they were born again in a nation with just a signature on a piece of paper from, from England, giving them the land of Palestine back to them that belongs to them. Born in one day. And so we see here, shall I bring birth and not cause it to bring forth? The Lord shall cause to bring forth. Shall he shut up the womb, of, says the Lord? And God says, no, I'm not going to shut up the womb. Israel is the blessing to the world. Always has been. Because God says they're going to be. 
Israel today, even though they are not a godly nation, not following after what God told them to do, is blessing the world. They feed a large chunk of the world from that little tiny country that was desert and swamp when they bought, when they bought all their land back from all the Arabs. And the Arabs charged them more money than they, sh than they should have and was laughing all the way to the bank when they sold them all that stinking swamp land that they got. And God has turned that swamp land into the most fertile area of the world. They're, no, they want it back now. You know, we want our land back. You know, we, and, they're, and they're not even admitting that they sold it at exorbitant prices to the Israelites. You know, England signed the agreement that said all that land belongs to them, and then the, the Israelites bought their land from the, Jew, the, the Arabs that sold them their land. And they sold it at high prices. They thought they had, you know, we got, a, we got some suckers on the line here. They want this land, and they, they think it's God's land, and we're going we're gonna to soak them for all that we can get. And God has blessed his people. He has made them a blessing to the world. A huge miracle. A land flowing with milk and honey. Now, when they went into it the first time, it was already that way. When they returned to it, God had to remake it into a land of milk and honey and great blessings. Uh, verse 10, rejoice you with Jerusalem and be glad with her. So here he's telling everybody else in the rest of, this, in the, rest of the world, rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad. And this is exuberant, exult uh, with her, you that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you that mourn for her. We as Christians should be exulting in Israel. Not that they're perfect, but neither are we. Not that they're even righteous right now, but they are God's chosen people. And it's the same thing for us as Christians. If we're God's children, he is going to defend us. Do they still believe that? that they're, they're, oh, yeah. If you listen to interviews, they'll tell you that they don't believe in God, but then they'll tell you that God gave them the land. They don't believe in God. For the most part, they're agnostics and atheists, but they believe that God gave them the land. The God they don't believe in gave them the land. It's the total double think that the world has right now. You know, it's so funny to listen to some of these interviews. Uh, but it is the double think that's going on even in our liberal society right now. Well, they'll tell you one thing, and then in two sentences later, even the same sentence, say something diametrically opposed and you point it out to them and you ask them which one's right and they'll tell you both. The double-mindedness and unstability of man without God is amazing. And God wants to come into us and make our thinking straight. Now the world looks at us and says, well, you guys are just a bunch of narrow-minded bigots. You know what? That's fine by me. I have to agree with whatever God says. And if that makes me narrow-minded, praise God. At least I'm stable. I'm not building my life on shifting sands of whatever I believe. I'm building my life on the absolute rock that God has given me. And so, yes, if I'm, you know, and I, I've shared this, if people start criticizing you for what you believe, just agree with them. If it's got some element of truth, agree with them. You know, well, you guys are, are strange. You believe that God is real. Absolutely. You believe that God is, is, cares for you. Absolutely. Why argue with them? You know, uh, 
you know, you believe in that, that old-fashioned that old book. Well, it may be old-fashioned, but it's still very true, and it's very much real for today. Well, God is just a crutch. Absolutely. What's your crutch? You know, we don't have to sit there and argue with them over things because it's not going to do any good anyway. How do we evangelize to them? We just tell them the truth. We give them the gospel. We are all sinners. We all deserve hell. Jesus died for our sins, and all you've got to do is accept the gift of Jesus Christ and be saved. You know, easy. It doesn't matter what religion they are or what religion they aren't. We give them the gospel message. I am not going to out-argue a Muslim out of their faith. And if I did, their imam, imam, imam is going to come right behind and argue them back into it. All right? Uh, I'm not going to convince a Jewish person of Christianity's truth you know, by just convincing them. Now, I'm not saying don't know these things and don't be willing to answer their questions, but you're not going to argue them out of what they believe without somebody else coming back in and saying, well, they didn't, they didn't say it right, and you know, this is what we really believe. And it doesn't, you know, we speak the truth. And the word of the truth convicts and turns them to him. And this is the important thing for it. God's truth changes people. Not my skill as an orator, which I don't have. You know, uh, I know lots of facts. I can, I, can, I can give them all the facts. I know the facts of many, many religions, and I can give them the facts of what they believe and why it's wrong and where their contradictions are. But it won't matter in the long run. They need to turn to God. Now, it doesn't mean I never use them, but not to try to get, to get them to make a decision because of that. I go for the truth. And that's what's important here. The truth will be what sets them free. And he says, you know, rejoice in her. Then we have this idea, and we see this very interesting thing, that you may nurse. I'm going to use the word nurse for our current English terms. You know, that you may nurse and be satisfied or sated full from her breast. This is Jerusalem. And of her consolation, her comfort. And that you may milk out. That literally means to take all of the milk. All right? You, you've taken all of it and be delighted in the abundance of her glory. Israel is have so much abundance that they help the rest of the world. Gentiles are going to do it. The Jews are going to. Everybody, everybody will be coming to her, just as they are doing right now. They're buying her food, their, her pharmacies, their technology. Everything about Israel is way advanced over most of the world, and they're not being stingy with it. Well, they've got doctors, they've got pharmacy, they've got research. They're big on DNA. They're, you know, they have some of the best. Uh, petroleum pumping stations and gas pumping stations and natural gas, not, not refined gas. You know, they grow more food than any place else. They are sharing their abundance of water with all the nations around them that need water. You know, they are not being stingy with the world, and yet the world criticizes them and attacks them at every turn. 
And you would think that they were sitting in their land being selfish. We got all this stuff and we're not giving it to you. That is not the way they're doing it. They are being abundantly generous with what they have. They are the only full-fledged democracy that works as a democracy and gives privileges to every member of their country, including the Arabs that live there. And the Palestinians, they all have the right to vote. And they're not blocked from their voting. They, they, many of those places have quote-unquote democracies. You have one vote and one person to vote for. You know, really good, really good election. Everybody, you get, this is who you're going to vote for. We have a democracy. He won. The parliament of Israel is made up of mostly Israelites, because there's more Israelites people, more, mostly Jews, but there are uh, Palestinians in their, in their assembly. There are a couple of Arab people in their, their parliament because they got voted for. They have a full-fledged democracy, and they're blessing the world. And then you wonder, why is the world so much out to get them? Satan is stirring a hatred. Some of it is the hatred that they have so much. The, the, the covetousness of people. You know, well, look at that. Look what, they, look what the land what they got. It was given to them, and you know, we, it, we should have it. And part of it is Satan stirring them up to kill the Jews. Again, remember, we've said this over and over. Satan's goal has always been to destroy the Jews. Before Jesus was born, it was to keep Jesus from being born. At the very least, he wanted the line of David wiped out, the tribe of Judah. He never was successful. Afterwards, he has to try to destroy them because everything about the end times is about the Jews. So he has to try to destroy the Jews so that God's promises won't be fulfilled. God is not going to let him be successful. But his whole goal is to try to destroy Israel so that he can prove that God's a liar and doesn't know the future. But God knows the future, knows what's going to happen, and isn't going to allow him to destroy his people. He's going to do a lot of damage to God's people, but he's not going to destroy them. And yet in the process, even though they're not a righteous people right now, God has put on their heart that they're being generous to all their neighbors. They're being generous to the world. They are feeding the world. They are watering the world. They are helping with medicine. They are helping with all these things, and yet the world hates them. But they do. Yeah. They don't, they don't do it as much as America and everything, but they show up, and they send help. They're, they're there because they're God's people, and they are helping. And they're not the richest nation in the world, but what they have, they're sharing with everybody. They're, they're pretty rich in that area. So then we get verse 12. For thus saith the Lord, behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. And this is Jerusalem. Peace, shalom. And we've talked about the idea of shalom. Shalom is much more than just the word peace in English. It is tranquilness, it is freedom, it is the, the perfect, perfect uh, peace of God. And he says, I will extend a peace to her like a river. And this is a flushing, a rushing, <laughs> flushing, rushing current of a river. This isn't a slow, gentle river. He says, I am giving her peace that is just rushing in. So much so that you have to do something with it. 
Okay? They've got so much peace. And the glory of the Gentiles, like a flowing stream, and this again is an overflowing stream, so she's getting glory in the Gentiles. And this is all before the millennial kingdom and, and the tribulation period. God has promised his people that they were going to be blessed. They are not following him. They don't accept him, and yet God is blessing. What a picture of his grace, because isn't that what he does to us? When we are not following him the way we should, because we're his children, he gives us grace, the amazing grace that God gives us. I am so wonderfully happy that God does not give me what I deserve. He gives me mercy and by not giving me what I deserve. And then on top of his mercy, he gives me all kinds of blessings that I don't deserve. And here he's telling the people, you're going to have all of these things. And it says, then shall you nurse, and them that are born at her side will be at her side. They'll be on her hip. If you see the mother carrying their child on her hip. And they shall, be cu- and they shall dangle upon her knees. Now, this is that idea of bouncing the kid on your knee. All right? they, and literally, it is, they will delight at her knees. All right? And that's playing horsey, you know, with your foot, you know, kicking them up and, you know, up and down on your, on your foot, bouncing them on your knee, comforting them on your knees. Israel will be the comfort of the world. Now, this will be fully, com- fully committed during the millennial kingdom. But it's starting to happen right now where God is saying, this is who I am, this is who you are. But if the millennial kingdom, when Jesus comes back to this world for a thousand-year reign, everything flows out of, out of Jerusalem. All of worship, all of the good, all the, all the gifts, because God is right there. Everything will flow out, and all the worship will be flowing into Jerusalem. And the temple will be rebuilt and will be reused not for the Yom Kippur ceremony, but for the Thanksgiving ceremonies and for the meal offerings and those type of offerings. And he will be lifted up and honored and lifted up before people. And he says, this is who I am. And verse 13 is the last one I want to cover today. As one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you, and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem. God love is now being pictured as a mother's love. And this is quite a picture because there's a big difference between a father's love and a mother's love generally. All right? The kid falls down. Mom is all over there hugging and kissing and picking him up. If it's dad nearby, especially if it's a boy, are you alive? Any broken bones? All right, get back up. You know, it's a tougher love which teaches the boy, you know, to stand up and be, and be stronger. Mom's right there, oh, are you, are you okay, sweetie? And, you know, and both loves are needed. There's nothing wrong, and this is what God is saying. I am there to give you that comfort. When you have fallen down on your, on your nose, has, has been scarred, and you've got a bruise on your head, and bruises on your elbows and knees, I'm going to pick you up and comfort you. He also has the times when he just picks us up and, and moves us forward, but he has this statement here that his love is such that he says, I'm going to make sure that you're okay. The mother's deep, affectionate love. God is not male. He is not female. He has attributes of both because both come out of him. When he created man, he created male, 
and female and split those attributes up between male and female. The strength of a man to, to defend, the strength of the man to protect, the strength of the man to say, are you okay? Okay, let's get up and, and get moving. And the love and the nurturing of the mother. And both are needed. And God has both parts. He is neither male nor female. Now, the problem is when, when you read certain versions of the Bible that try to use it or she, you know, God represents himself in the masculine in most cases because he wants to emphasize his strength and his protective mode. But there are verses all scattered all through scripture that shows the soft side of God. It says God loves us with gentleness and kindness. His tender mercies all through the Psalms. You know, his love for us that is soft and gentle. And there's times when he can be very strong and harsh. And that's needed as well. Both sides of his love are needed for us to be able to say, I love you in a, in a complete, complete way. And as for us, you know, men have to learn to, to have a softer love for our families a little bit more often, and women have to have a little tougher side more often. But in general, we have the tendency to be male and female. And that's not 100%. I've seen men who are so soft and you wouldn't, wouldn't know that they're hard, and I've seen women that are so harsh and hard that you wouldn't know that, that there was a soft side. You know. But in general, God created us with certain attributes. And it is true that most of the time, those attributes come out and are full. And here we see that God loves us so much, he says, I want to comfort you. I just want to pick you up and hold you and, and hug and kiss you and make sure that everything's okay and just comfort you. You had a bad time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you. And there's a great time for that, that kind of comfort at times. And God says, I am capable of doing that for you. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for all that you've done. Lord, help us to see your love, your care for us. Help us to see and appreciate your tenderness and your caring. Help us to seek and find you in all that we do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please, today, make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.